Kia ora and welcome to episode 60 of the Stag Roar. This episode I had the absolute pleasure of sitting down with Nick Morton from Ozcut Broadheads. Um, if you've listened to the episode 59 already with Adam Gavner, Adam and I talk about Nick and how awesome his Instagram page is. Um, this episode obviously has a big bias towards bow hunting and in particular Nick's product, the Broadhead, so the crucial cutting blade of the arrow and we dive a little bit into the weeds of about what makes his product so good and and what you're looking for in a good broadhead and also what makes archery so awesome but tune in because this is not just an episode about archery and about hunting and and specifically about broadheads this is actually an episode that personifies the stag roar about living a life a little less ordinary and following a passion despite what some people might say I think it's awesome that Nick going through school decided that hey I want to do bow hunting and be involved with bow hunting for the rest of my life and make the most of being a young bloke and look where it's got him it's super amazing you know he has people like Adam Greentree endorsing his his product um, people all over the states using the product and, and loving it and so yeah following the passion, scratching the itch, and look at what amazing things has come out from it. From it. You know, traveling to New Zealand, traveling to Africa, traveling to America. Um, I'm sure Europe will be after him soon. Um, hope you enjoy this episode. I loved it. And be sure to give Nick a shout out on Instagram. Uh, tag us in your post as well. If you enjoy it, if you like it, if you've got a problem with it, get in contact with us. I'd love to have a chat. And uh, be sure to share with your friends. Let's get into it. Cheers. Kia ora, everybody. Um, in our last episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Adam Kavner again, and we were talking bow hunting, and we were discussing that we needed to get this man here, Nick Morton, on the show, mate. Before we start, what did you do on the weekend? It looks pretty epic, judging by your, uh, by your Instagram there, man. Uh, thanks for having me, Ryan. It's a pleasure. But a um, little bit of a different weekend um, from what most people know me doing uh, just sort of done a little bit of marlin fishing which is one of my other sort of long-seated hobbies that I've had so yeah I spent the weekend chasing marlin down at Port Stephens um, in New South Wales didn't uh, manage to stick the hooks into any but we we seen a couple and had a good time nonetheless right, and who was to blame was it the boat driver or, or you guys on, on the on the reels no, um, it's it's kind of early season at the moment. Um, there's a lot of hot water and a lot of current pushing down the coast at the moment, but uh, not much baits are massing with that. So basically, you'll find the fish where the bait is. So if there's no bait out there, you're almost driving around in in the desert, I guess. So still early days for the season at the moment, but sort of late January, February, March is when it really hots up and fires down on this part of the coast. Awesome. I'm definitely appreciating those um, warm currents coming past um, the north coast of New South Wales, mate. It uh, makes getting out there in the water at, at six in the morning bloody nice. For those, yes. Uh, no, you're right, going. Sorry. No, you're right, mate. Um, I was going to say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was going to say, um, yeah, we've done that there. But um, no, I was going to say on the weekend, we actually had water up to uh, 27 and a half degrees. Um, out on the continental shelf out there, so it's it's pretty insane how how warm water can get just from the natural elements out there. Absolutely, that's that's freakish, mate. For those that don't know you, for for those who aren't um, 
Well, like me, I have to be honest, the last time I, I shot a bow was probably middle school and, and that was a, a traditional recurve. But um, for those out there who don't have a passion for this awesome sport that is bow hunting and, and really want to get into it and are looking at, you know, who's, who's who, who is Morden? Well, um, I guess basically um, I'm Nick Morton and I guess most of you guys who are into bow hunting would know me through Oscar Broadheads. Um, that's my business I founded uh, around five years ago. But in a nutshell, I'm just a passionate bow hunter who's, I guess, trying to be exploring the world lately with a bow in my hand. Um, I've got such a love and passion for the sport and every hunt I undertake is a new adventure and... I'm just really trying to get out there and do as much of it as I can while I'm young, fit and able to, I guess. it's Whether it's hunting pigs in the mountains, which is my staple, which I do at home, um, hunting deer, hunting buffalo up north, um, tar in New Zealand. Um, I've just got a love for the whole sport and the whole process and I guess the lifestyle that comes with it. Mate, uh, I said this in the last podcast with Adam. What is it about Australia? Is it the gun laws or... Or is it just that you guys like to do things a little bit harder than, than most of us Kiwis? And um, what is it about Australia that everyone seems to have a bow in their hand and uh, is not afraid to chase down a big animal um, compared to the rifle? For me, I think it's, I don't know whether it's something so instinctual about it. It, it just feels right to hunt with a bow. Um, uh, no disrespect to anyone who hunts with a rifle or whatever hot form of hunting you do. But for me, uh, just the level of satisfaction I get from hunting with a bow. You're, you're getting in so close to the animals that you're, you learn their habits so personally. You've got to be really on the game, really switched on to do it all. And I think the whole experience is something a little bit more natural, uh, a bit more primitive hunting with a bow and arrow like we have done for thousands of years. Um, but for me, it's just about getting close and being able to interact with them animals it's such a close distance. Um, you learn a lot um, just by observing and visualising those animals. And it's all part of the process for me, but it's that, that closeness factor, do you know what I mean? You're, you're not hunting until you're sub 50 metres generally, whereas with a rifle, it's under 100 yards, you can pull that trigger if you've got a clear shot. With a bow, and especially for me, I, I like to get in under 30 metres in close and personal, and when I let that arrow go, I know my shot's on the mark 100% every time. So I guess it's that sort of closeness for me and really interacting with that animal and, and learning them. That's that's such a draw card and attraction for bow hunting with me, I guess. Awesome, man. And you you said your home range there mostly is in the mountains, hunting pigs. Um, often on, on your storage, you sit up at three in the morning to go for a bit of a drive to get into it. What What's your sort of set up and access like, um, you know, obviously pretty lucky to get out amongst pigs quite often. Yeah, um, I wish my alarm was three in the morning. Generally, it's more like one thirty in the morning. Um, I've got a couple hours drive if I leave from home, but I've got a few properties that I hunt um, up in the Hunter Valley region of New South Wales, but um, generally going for a hunt, I've got to drive anywhere from two hours to four hours to go for a hunt. So if I want to get out there and be there at prime time, which is as the sun's rising, I've got to get up at 1.30 or do whatever I've got to do to get there. But um, yeah, I've got a few places ranging from 500 acres up to about 5,000 acres in the hills. Um, obviously, they've got other species there as well, but over the years, I've just been really drawn to 
uh, hunting mountain boars. They're very elusive in their habits, nocturnal a lot of the time. You can't really call them in. They don't have a rutting season as such. They're just they're very unpredictable and elusive animals. So knowing that they're there but not seeing a lot of them get shot or harvested for me is the draw card and obviously just seeing a 100 kilo mountain boar on the hoof in the wild is it's something in itself they're just such a big aggressive intelligent and sometimes intimidating animal um i don't know if from your own perspective uh, you look at a boar compared to a deer a lot of people sort of discount pigs and go oh it's only a pig blah 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 i don't know what's your personal thoughts on it mate um in New Zealand, obviously, they, they chase them with dogs and, and stick them and, and um, even even go with a rifle. Everyone's pretty dubious about the shield on the thing. So, um, yeah, I, I love eating boars. So <laughs> if, if, if one came across, I definitely wouldn't be picky. Um, I'm pretty amateur when it comes to hunting, and that's why it's so awesome to get, get in touch with people that are you know out there testing it, testing themselves so much. Yeah, sweet. Yeah. What, what I was sort of getting at with, with that was a lot of people like, oh, yeah, it's only a pig. It's, it, it's stupid, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and what I sort of try and say to people is how many big fallow deer do you get? Uh, do you see shot every rut? You, you'll see a lot of big deer hit the deck, but it's how many big mountain boars do you see get shot every year? And big proper mountain boars, they're a lot further and few in between than say deer and things like that. Um, I think because people, they don't go out and specifically target them. They're a very hard animal to come across unless you're very, very specifically targeting going to hunt a big boar. You're not gonna sort of stumble across one at nine in the morning whilst you're hunting fallow or things like that. Those boars, they're an hour uh, after the sun comes up and an hour before the sun sets is typically when you're gonna catch them out. So. You're generally in the mountains, unless they're rushing or it's windy, you're not going to be shooting them one in a day typically. Um, you've really got to go out and, and chase them specifically. I think that's probably what's really cool about what you're doing as well. Like I said, in New Zealand, most pick hunters um, <clears throat> are going out with a pack of dogs and I guess that becomes quite indiscriminate and you know, plenty of sows and, and piglets and stuff get taken. But with, with a bow... You know, you've got that ability to be very purposeful in your target species and your target animal. And and um, is there anything that you're sort of looking for when it comes comes to a big boar? Like, what what's the sort of classification for you to target target a certain animal? As in animal wise, or uh, actual where I'll actually hunt for them. Uh, where I'll, find, where I'll start looking for big boars, they need one thing, and that's cover amongst all. They're not going to live in an area where there's no cover. So generally, there's got to be some thick cover around, water close by, and food. But those three things are typically what a big boar will like, with the cover being the main focus. So there, there might be a, an open hill face um, with a dense timber line behind it. You'll, you'll typically find that those big boars will bed up in the thickest part of that timber and you'll catch them either going back into that timber early morning once the sun's come up and they've had their feed overnight, or if you're lucky enough, you'll catch them coming out um, to feed in the afternoon. There's there's one particular spot I hunt, and I know the pigs bed in this really thick lantana-type scrub. Um, if, ooh, I just had a microphone for me. I think I was saying that there's one particular area that I hunt, and it's as I said, it's got a lot of thick lantana-type scrub there. 
Um, it's basically impenetrable to walk through, but if you get in there and have a sticky beak around, you'll notice there's a lot of pig beds. You'll find a lot of droppings in there. So it's like, okay, this is where pigs obviously come and bed during the day or when they're not feeding. So I'll know they're there, but I physically can't hunt them in that. So I'll basically go and sit off this clearing of an afternoon and I might sit there from four, four o'clock or five o'clock once the thermals start dropping down the mountain. So for those who don't understand what the thermals do, basically whilst the air's hot and the sun's in the air and it's heating it, the air is going to be more likely to rise up and go over the mountain. And as the day ends and the sun sets, the air will cool down and be more likely to draw down the mountain. So on this particular part of the mountain, I'll wait for that sun to start setting the air to cool down so I know it's going to be dropping away, sort of going away from where the pigs are going to be better and I'll literally sit there until dark. Um, a lot of times I won't see anything come out, but when I, when I do see something, it'll be half an hour before it's totally pitched back. You, you'll hear the rumbling in the bushes, you'll hear the sticks rumbling, you'll be like, okay, here he comes and there's your opportunity at the boar and you'll catch him coming out half an hour before sunset. Um, and there's a few factors that sort of determine when a boar in the mountains is going to come out and feed. And the best time, in my opinion, to hunt them is in the middle of winter. So the colder, the better. Um, and what the cold does to the pigs is they're like us. They, they want to be comfortable and they want to be warm. So if you get those nights once it dips below minus two, minus three, minus four, um, I sort of get a little bit excited and go, okay, maybe these boars aren't going to come out and feed of a night like they typically do. They're going to stay in their warm bed because it is so cold. And I'll go, okay, as soon as that sun hits the mountain, they're going to be waking up and then being forced to go out and feed in the daylight because they've slept all night to try and stay warm and now they're hungry. So that weather forces their hand to come out and feed. So, man. And then, and then how do you choose which, which animal's the one that you want? Um, I'm pretty selective and I guess before I'll, I'll cop a little bit of flack about this um, passing up sows and things like that, a, a lot of the places I hunt, um, a couple of guys own as hunting properties and things. Um, so on those places, I, I will not shoot a sow at all. Um, sows are pretty much the magnets that keep the boars in the area. If you have no sows, you're not going to have boars. Um, but in saying that, I've got a couple of other places where the the landowners um, obviously want them removed for pests, so I'll go through and arrow what I see. But um, specifically hunting a big boar, um, I'll try and avoid anything under around the 55 kilo mark that's sort of under about three and a half years old, um, mainly because a pig of that size, they're, they're a little bit easier to come across. They haven't got in the habits that the big boars have, have got in. Um, and I know that in that area, if I leave him in 12 months' time, he's going to put on maybe 15 kilos of size and just be a whole different class of pig. Um, if you see some of the photos of some of the real big boars I've shot, the difference between a boar that's 80 kilos and five years old and, say, 90, 95 kilos and eight years old is, is massive. They're just a different class of animal. So I, I try and be pretty picky and let a lot of the younger sort of boars go on the, on the blocks that I can. Um, but... If he's got the right shape and he's the right size, I'm going to put a stalk in on that boar every single time. Nice. And so, obviously, with with bigger size, you know that shield comes into effect. What What's the most important thing with where you're placing the shot? Okay. Um, one thing with big boars in particular is if you hit them poorly, 
90% of the time you're not going to get them back um, in comparison to a deer or, or goat or whatever. Um, you, you might put a bad shot on them. Um, they, they might run 200 yards and bed up under a tree. Unless you're really putting your arrow on the money with a big ball, they will just keep running and running and running. So you, you don't get those second chances. So I'm a big fan of a, a broadside shot, um, basically dead broadside and for those of, not, those of you who know what the triangle is, which is basically the formation that comes around the scapula and the leg, it, it goes forward in a bit of a triangle shape and that sort of avoid where the heart sits. Um, basically, what I'll try and do is I'll try and aim for the top of the heart and the, and the middle of the lungs. So essentially what you're doing is cutting the top of the aorta and the main artery is from the top of the heart, but you're also taking the oxygen oxygen out of them by shooting them in, in the double lung, I guess. Um, so for me, that, that shot is typically between a third of the way up and halfway up the animal. Um, some, some guys, particularly deer hunters, will like to shoot animals a little bit lower, but for me, um, shooting just that little bit higher up the animal will allow me to take top of the heart, middle of the lungs, and it has a little bit of leeway for error. If I shoot too high or too low, I'm still going to hit either lungs or heart, whereas... If you're going through a pure heart shot, which a lot of guys do, if you hit too low, you, you could be going through no man's land and hitting nothing at all. So, um, But in saying that, on those bad shots, um, on big bores, I've seen shots that I would consider as good shots that have just taken out, that's a quartering shot, and you, you take out the main part of one lung and you'll, you'll clip the back of the second lung. I've seen big bores carry shots that, they really shouldn't have and not being recovered. So it's really important that on those really big class of animals, you, you really put that arrow on the money. Mate, and obviously you're, you're the man to ask um, what's crucial in an in a arrow and a broadhead? Uh, Age-old question. Um, <laughs> there's no right or wrong answer with that one, but for me personally, I'll speak on what works for me. Um, I've, I've narrowed down my setup over the last few years and, Basically, the setup for me, I like to run, I use our Ozcut 150-grain three-blade broadhead, um, but it's in a, a smaller cutting diameter than what three-blade broadheads are typically. So it's a one-inch cutting diameter compared to, I'd say, conventional three-blades, which are an inch and an eighth or an inch and a quarter cutting diameter. So essentially, it's a more acute cutting angle, which allows it to penetrate a little bit further. Um, so you're allowing for fighting pad contact with bone and things like that. But what that uh, third blade does, as uh, sorry, in comparison to a two blade, that third blade will allow the fighting pad not to seal up. So on those big bores, they can have a fighting pad up to almost two inches thick that, that can seal up and obviously prevent blood from escaping and whatever. So that third cutting blade, it's, it prevents that. So you, you'll have a three-blade cut with almost the penetration of a two-blade two-blade broadhead. Um, so for me, that size broadhead has, has worked flawless over the years and I've just got so much confidence in it. Um, but obviously on a reasonably heavy arrow for the bow hunters out there listening, I run an arrow generally between 550 and 570 grains um, with about 220 to 250 grains up front in between the broadhead and the outset. So a lot of forward, forward centre, which is the weight distribution from the uh, axis in the middle of the arrow towards the front of it. Um, but just obviously my recommendation is a sturdy broadhead with a bit of weight in it that's going to hit with a bit of authority um, as opposed to just go fast through the air and stop when it hits bone. Mate, you, you've just uh, really said something off there 
with me at, at, at school were you into maths and, and physics much or has it just been driven by how, how an arrow flies <laughs> uh, a, a little bit um I, I guess it's been a lot of trial and error over the years um just to go digress a little bit how i was led to start Ozcut in the beginning was I'd shot a few American brand of broadheads and I sort of wasn't happy with performance. I was bending a few, I was snapping a few. And I remember on this one particular hunt, um, I was still only reasonably young um, and I shot this really big bore and basically I got about two inches of penetration because the broadhead basically snapped in half when it shouldn't have on a rib. And I just said to myself, I can do better than this. I, I don't like this design. I can do better. And that led me down the path of creating Ozcut, um, I guess through, I guess out of necessity somewhat because I'm such a perfectionist with my gear. So over the years through trial and error, um, different setups, seeing what's worked and obviously just harvesting so many animals, you really sort of get to know what works and learn the theory behind it. So I'd say a little bit of both, a bit of practical uh, experience and obviously some theoretical knowledge. Yeah, nice. So what was, what was sort of your, your first steps in, into kicking it off? Did you... Um, like obviously it's a small piece of piece of metal, which which means so much. What what did you sort of start to get to get the company off and running? Um, well, to start with, it wasn't started as a company. I basically said, "Hey, I'm going to make this broadhead." Um, I had some friends um, with parents who had an engineering uh, workshop, and basically said, "I want to make these for myself." Um, and the first broadhead we made was our 185 grain two blades. So that broadhead's been superseded now to a 175 grain broadhead uh, because that's obviously standardised size of shoot. But I made that broadhead to the specs that I wanted because that was what I believed to be the superior broadhead at the time and basically made that for me to use. Um, so starting it as a business, I sort of somewhat started it back to front, inside out, um, with how I would have in hindsight if I knew that that was the clear-cut direction I was going to take. Um, but it went from one broadhead in the 185 to a, a 125 grain two-blade, which went to a three-blade. And then I said, hey, I've got a lot of traction with this, got a lot of support from a lot of guys here in Australia, um, made our takedown series, which is a value-for-money broadhead. I may have then come out with the Ultra 4, which is our uh, brand-new four-blade broadhead that we've got. And I'm just about to release our new Hurricane uh, series broadhead that Probably if you're listening to this now, you may have seen something about it, which is our new one of our new patented broadheads for 2019. So I guess the range is really starting to grow now, which is pretty exciting. Um, we've got a lot of lot of support there, which has allowed us to do that. But in essence, it all started out of necessity for me wanting more out of my equipment and gear. That's awesome. And, and did you have any local comp competition with that, or, or was it just something that hey, finally we've got something that's locally made and everybody went with it? Uh, not really. A, a lot of uh, bow hunters at the time, American stuff was all we had. Um, bow hunting in Australia is still a very small demographic, so we're not as spoiled as, say, America, where they have everything. So it was basically, and particularly 5, 10, 15 years ago, it was you used what you could get. Um, obviously now we've got a lot more choice um, with things online coming in, but I'd say a little bit of both. It was sort of, hey, here's some Australian companies starting up doing broadheads um, and also a, a new style of broadhead than 
what was typically coming in from over in America. So it was something that was, was more suited to Australian bow hunters. And if you could just touch on the difference between what they were typically designing over there and what made you a little bit different. Yeah, um, so in America, um, typically they're hunting more thin-skinned game species, so your whitetail and your elk are basically their staple game animals in North America. So what you would find is they liked really light, really fast broadheads, typically a three-blade, four-blade, even an expandable broadhead. Um, and what these would have is they'd have sort of what I would class as flimsy blades, um, replaceable blades, but in essence were designed to be a one-shot wonder. Um, if you look at it holistically, an American might harvest one, two, maybe three animals a year if they're lucky due to the tag system and licensing and however it falls over there. An Australian guy, he might shoot 20, 30, 40, 50 animals a year. So you look at that and it's like, okay, he's going to be spending a lot of money on broadheads. If you're throwing a broadhead and arrow away because it's unusable after every time you shoot an animal, that's going to turn into a very costly exercise. So Aussie guys look for a broadhead that wasn't as fancy necessarily, but was far more durable. Um, so with our heads, I've had guys shoot 10, 15, 20 animals with the one individual head. Um, before they've lost lost the arrow. So that, because it saved the guys a lot of money and it, it just su suited the style of hunting we done. You, you could shoot one or two animals a day with the same broadhead in your quiver and keep going and not having to worry about it compared to an American head, which 90% of the time you would shoot it and then throw it in the bin. Mm. And especially if you've got to import that in, uh, as you said, cost, cost soon racks up. 100%. Mate, um, you managed to get over there to, to the States. Tell, tell us about uh, how that came about and, and what you got out of such an amazing trip. Uh, so I've been, um, I guess with Ozcut, I've been to America three times now. I head over again in about a month's time, exactly, for the Western uh, hunting exhibition over in Salt Lake City in Utah. But uh, my first ever time to America, um, I went with the guys from Brackenware, um, an Australian startup company who are doing camo. And we went over to the Great Outdoor Show in Pennsylvania. Um, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's basically an outdoor hunting and fishing show and it runs for nine days. Um, nine, days seems, nine days seems like a long time, but uh, when you're exhibiting at a show, it's an eternity. But um, what, what I learned, it was a little bit mixed going over to that show. A lot of people, obviously, were, were still a start-out company, um, still growing our presence, so most of the people hadn't heard of us, but the actual concept and style of Broadhead, I, I wouldn't say it wasn't suited to the demographic there, was, wasn't known to the demographic. Um, in Australia, a two-blade Broadhead is our staple Broadhead. It's our bread and butter. It's what we've used for the last 50 years. Everyone knows how... how effective they can be and they work there's no there's no questions about that over there guys would come up and have a look and they'd see a two-blade broadhead and go what's this that's like what the indians would use and we're just baffled that something so simple with no moving parts nothing to expand or close or anything like that not, something so simple was so effective um and I guess they, they doubted its effectiveness and, I, and I'd show them albums and albums of photos and things like that. And I guess because it was something they weren't used to seeing and what's been ingrained is them has been expandable broadhead or three-blade broadhead, it was very, very foreign. It was very hard to convince them that this is a super, super effective broadhead and design. 
Um, so with that in mind, I was like, okay, that show was good. It was get, got a bit of exposure out there. We spoke to a lot of people um, and I sort of told my theories behind Broadheads. And once you'd have the conversation with people, they'd sort of relate to you. And we, we had a lot of people try the products, which was good, um, and still have hunters over there using them. But um, the show that I went to the year after was the Western Hunting um, Convention in Utah. And what I seen was this demographic was a lot more elk hunters and big game hunters. Um, so I was like, okay, th these guys are definitely going to have uh, a lot more respect for the products we're bringing over. And by that time we went over, it was in February of uh, 2018, we went over there and we'd obviously grown a larger presence within the industry. And to my surprise, a lot of people had heard, heard about us, heard good things. And, and we done really well at that show. There was a, a good reaction from everyone we come and spoke to. We have a lot of people over there now that are using the product, that have taken bulls, that have taken bucks with Ozcuts over in America. Um, so it was, it, was, it was really, really good to see. Um, and again, I'm going over in another four weeks' time, so I'm looking to, uh, I guess, see what the reaction is after another 12 months of those heads being in the market and the guys over there seeing that they're, they're really world-class broadhead, I guess. And so what do you think is key to the awareness in such a uh, big market? Um, Mr. Green, if I, knew that, <laughs> <laughs> if I knew the answer to that one, um, probably to be doing a lot more sales, but um, I guess it's just getting out there and just obviously the awareness to people, the more people that can see that this broadhead's quality and the more people that put their trust in it, which is happening, um, our, our team base is growing exponentially at the moment, you know. Um, basically, you'll have someone and you'll see they'll, they'll buy a pack of broadheads and they'll, they'll get three broadheads and try them out and be sceptical and whatnot. And then you'll get a message back a couple of months later and be like, hey, hey, hey guys, um, just harvested my first elk with this broadhead, got a pass through, hit the opposite shoulder blade, broke the shoulder or whatever. And guys sending you messages full of confidence and just really, really loving the product and the more of that we get the, the more of their friends and their peers will also start seeing hey this broadhead's pretty good so i guess it's i guess it's just a process of becoming trusted and people knowing that you're a quality brand out there for the right reasons so um every year we're, we're, we're growing and giving broadheads to a lot more people and, and getting a lot more people on our team and those people that they've been shooting our heads and they keep coming back to it so i guess if we can keep doing that obviously the popularity is only going to grow Nice, and I guess that ties in as well with the with the ethics of hunting. If you've got something that's reliable, repeatable, and and does does an excellent job, and it means that you don't lose an animal, then you're going to keep keep at it. Would, would you say that's one of the most important things when it comes to a broadhead? What one hundred percent? Well, what I say to a lot of people is, I say this is a broadhead that you release that arrow, this broadhead will do the same thing every single time. It has nothing to open. It has nothing to expand. It's going to do the same thing every single time. It's not going, you're not going to be worrying about equipment failure on animals, which, which has happened to me in the past and obviously led me to starting Ozcup. Um, so that's a massive um, focal point for me. And that's what, that's what I say to everyone. You screw this on the end, on the end of your arrow and you know it's going to work for you. Put 100% trust in it and I guess it's also something we owe to the animals, you know. If, if you're going to be out there taking your life, we need to be doing it ethically and everything like that and using the best possible equipment we can. So if guys can put that trust in there, deliver that ethical shot, um, it's just all the more better for us all. Absolutely. And I suppose when it comes to you 
you, you know, you've um, chased down, you've stalked an adrenaline's high and, and you're going through your process. I, I guess not having that doubt in your mind must be crucial because I'm, I'm sure uh, the process is, is the key thing to letting off this nice smooth shot. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so you do all that hard work. You don't want to have to be worrying about, oh, is, is my arrow going to do this? Is my broadhead up to the task from here? Use the gear that you know is going to work 100% every single time and that's just one less thing you've got to worry about. You've just got to get in range, get that shot and put that arrow in the right place and your equipment will do its job for you. Mate, uh, is one of the benefits of your product that you can actually practice with the broadhead and, and get a really good feel for how it's going to fly when, when you're practicing or, or is yeah, you still in danger of a bit of damage? No, no, um, obviously I encourage everyone to practice with the broadheads that they shoot. Um, just just for the people's, people out there who don't know, some of the American broadheads uh, that are typically expandable and things like that, you can't shoot those at targets obviously, but uh, that, they do come out with practice heads and things like that. Um, but what a lot of people do is they'll practice with field points of the same weight of their broadhead. Um, however, me personally, I'll, I'll only ever practice with my broadheads because if I'm out hunting, I'm, I'm not using a field point, I'm using a broadhead, so why would I practice with something that's not the real deal every time? Um, if I've got something wrong with my setup, it's going to show, whereas you've got that field point on, it might not show that little discrepancy in your setup. So for me, I'm a massive advocate of practicing with what you hunt with. So 100% practicing with broadheads every single time. Now that's awesome. Um, another cool feature of, of what you're doing. Mate, you uh, managed to get over to my homeland and chase a tar. What was that experience like, mate? And what, what motivated you to get out there and what? I did, I did. And the only thing I'm upset about is I didn't do it 10 years ago. Um, I, I fell in love with New Zealand the moment I set foot in those hills. Um, for me, hunting the mountains is my true passion and that country over there, just the sheer steepness, the size, just how epic it was, um, it's something else. If, if you, anyone out there listening is wanting to go to New Zealand, do it and thank me later. It is, it's just the best experience. But um, uh, what I've been saying I'm going to go over for about the past two years now and prior to that sort of work commitments had not allowed me to do that and I was on Instagram one day and uh, for those of you who know Tom Jones, the tar, the tar man over there, um, he posted something and I, I shot him a message and in which he replied, when are you coming to shoot a tar? And basically from that conversation, uh, about two days later I had flights booked um, to head over and go hunt tar. So it wasn't something that was planned as such. It's sort of just spur of the moment trip and it happened. Um, so I went over with Aidan and James Doomsis, the two brothers, and we had no expectations, no idea what to expect, and we come home with myself shooting a really good bull and Aiden um, having chances on another two. So that trip for me has, I guess, ignited something a little bit deeper there, and I, I can see myself going on a couple of trips to New Zealand every year. Um, everything about the hunting over there appealed me, appealed to me on, on so many different levels. Um, but we, we only went over for five days and I was very lucky to shoot the bull that I shot. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's uh, 13 inches and some change and he was 10 and a half years old. So 
a massive, massive old trophy bull. Um, I shot him at six yards, actually, out of his bed on the side of a cliff, which was epic in itself. So I went over there happy to come home empty-handed, and I've, I've come home with a 13-inch bull that most people dream of. So that trip in itself was, it was just amazing. But I just, I, I want to go over there again just to experience it all again, those mountains, the steepness, the harshness of it. It's, it's just a magical, magical place over there. Sure, cheers. Um, it's some, something I can't wait to get back to actually. But um, we, we sort of pushed and pressured because of, uh, and it's what we talked about when we talked about hard yards hunting, um, that the, the tar, you know, were, were under threat for a little while there of a massive cull and, and, and more and more of the politics behind that has come out. That, and, and thankfully, um, the Deer Stalkers Association and, and, and the, the Tar Foundation have gotten behind it and and meant that that's not the case, but was, was that sort of what, what gave you a little bit of a push that, hey, these things might not be so accessible anymore? It, it, it was a little bit of a push, um, and, I, and I'll be honest, when, when all that first came about, I was like, shit, I, I really need to get over there. Like, I, I was kicking myself up if I hadn't, and it would have been would have been a terrible loss if what was planned did go ahead. Um, but I wasn't planning on getting over until about May this year for the rut. Um, I had no, if you had asked me two weeks before you, if you're going to New Zealand in December, I would have said flat out no. Um, so it was more the fact of why not at the time. And I had a couple of spare days, Aiden and James lined up some time off as well. So it was more of a spur, spur of the moment thing for December, but it was definitely something I was going to do within the next six months. Um, and hopefully I'll probably get over again in May, which I plan to for the rut. But yeah, it was definitely just a spare-of-the-moment trip, which I'm really, really glad we went on. Oh, so what sort of area were you in? Were you in a ballot or just in just an open open country area? We were sort of uh, we were down around the Mount Cook area on the east coast down there. So I don't know the land too well down there. Um, Tom was kind enough to help us out with a few spots. So we basically hired a car and we'd we'd go and check out a spot. If that was no good, we'd, we'd go to the next spot. Okay, there's a couple of bulls in here and basically figured it out. By, by day four and five, we sort of knew where there was a few bulls living and whatnot, but it was a little bit of trial and error and just sort of feel around and just spend a lot of time behind the glass where we were, I guess. Should you? Um, and so mountains, how did you prepare for that? <laughs> Uh, well, I didn't have much time to prepare for that one, but um, when I was on my hunt in uh, Utah earlier in the year, I think that was November, if it serves me right, um, I drew a tag at the Western Hunting Convention for Utah late season bull elk in the Wasatch Mountains. So that's a pretty coveted um, tag in a limited unit, a limited entry unit. So um, by all means, that's a rifle hunt, um, but I elected to go over and bow hunt it, of course. So... Um, in preparation for that trip, I'm generally hunting one or two days a week. So I don't do any cardio exercise at the gym. I won't go for a run every morning because essentially every week I'm getting out in the mountains and I'm doing 20, 25 kilometers a day in the mountains once or twice a week. So that sort of keeps my match fitness up to where it needs to be. But obviously with that, that massive trip coming up, we're planning on hunting nine days in the backcountry in bigger mountains that I've ever been in before. So I sort of stepped it up a little bit and I'll sort of train at the gym between six or seven days a week. Um, so what I was throwing in at the end of every session, I'd get on the Stairmaster stair um, with the weighted pack on 
And I'd do that for either 45 minutes or an hour with a 20 or 30 kilo pack on. Um, and for those of the, you who know what that is, it is just absolute hell. Um, so I'd done that for about a month prior to that trip and I was in one of the fittest shapes I've ever been in my life. I could sort of walk up any mountain when I was going hunting around here without breaking a sweat. Um, but I got over there in the high altitude and uh, that new level of altitude over 10,000 feet just broke me. Uh, that lack of oxygen, it, it, it was difficult. But, um, yeah, definitely the preparation before helped me a lot with that one. Yeah, I can only imagine what it's like to be, be that high. Even, even New Zealand, when you're up 4,000 feet, you start to find a little bit thin, but, yeah, 10,000, wow. Um, <laughs> What what sort of gym were you in, and what were the looks from uh, people around, or was it basically headphones in and look look at the stairs? <laughs> uh, uh, for a while there, there was um, everyone I'd, that I'd carry my hunting pack in there, and you'd sort of get some weird looks. But um, it's a pretty friendly gym where I'm at down at home that I've, I've trained at for a long time, so everyone knows everyone there. And it was sort of at the end, it's look at this psychopath um, on his stand machine up there. But um, no, it was pretty well received actually. But I offered for a lot of people to have a go and see how difficult it was, but um, I only had one of my mates who sort of took me up on it and it became a bit of our ritual. We'd, we'd get on the stair machine each and basically walk until the, the floor was a pile of sweat around us, which it, it was good fun. Mate, you might have to add one of those Bane masks uh, to prepare for, for the altitude. <laughs> Not that I hear that they work fully, but you know, <laughs> might have you get used to the lack of oxygen. Just to make things even more difficult, because that's how we like it. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, what what uh, get me to the start of your journey? How did you get get into bow hunting anyway? Um, there was no direct path or lead into bow hunting for me. Um, my father, when he was younger, he was into hunting with rifles and dogs and things like that. Um, but sort of when the gun buyback happened in Australia, he handed over a lot of his, uh, all of his firearms basically. So it was, he was getting out of the sport. Um, I'd done a lot of fishing when I was young because that's what um, dad's very passionate about. But we grew up on a little bit of land and I just find myself every weekend as a young kid, I was going out wanting to explore. I was fascinated by nature. Um, animals, everything like that. And sort of from as long as I can remember, really, I was I was always on the weekend making bow and arrows out of bits of bamboo with fishing line and making up arrows. And I was always fascinated by archery. And um, when I started school, I seeing DVDs by the likes of Brad Smith, the original Hogs of Oz and, and things like that, that was a, a massive, massive thing for me. I just remember thinking, that is what I want to do when I'm older. I want to hunt. I want to hunt mountain boars. I, from a young age, I just said that I really, really want to do that when I get older. And basically, from a kid, it's always been something I've I've wanted to do, and I've slowly got into. I basically self-taught myself everything. Slowly gained access to properties, and it, it, it's my passion in life now. So it's it's what my life revolves around. But there's been no direct lead into it. It's just something that's felt so instinctive and natural for me to do it's when i'm doing it it's this is what i'm put here to do um so yeah it's been it's been a slow transition process over my life to it but um i, I can't see myself not being a bow hunter that's just that's just who i am awesome and in school when somebody asked you what you're going to do and you said um, hunt bulls in the mountains what was the response usually like <laughs> <laughs> it's obviously um 
In the area I am, hunting was somewhat accepted. Um, it's not like I grew up in inner Sydney or anything like that where it was this taboo subject. Um, but definitely when I was young, I, I, I would not have foreseen myself um, hunting or doing as much hunting as I am now. It's, it, I guess it keeps growing from that. But um, it's something I've got a passion for that, that I'll take to the grave now. It's, yeah, it's, it's about everything I do. Um, I just can't do enough hunting, basically. It's, yeah, I'm so passionate about it. And I guess helping other people get into the sport, um, bow hunting now is seemingly a lot more culturally acceptable and there's a lot more people getting into it, whether they're wanting to harvest their own food or they just, they're interested in archery. Um, it, the demographic in Australia is, is, is definitely growing, which is a great thing. I just surfing back a bit, you said you sort of did, did the business thing inside out. What, what sort of uh, new hat has that, you know, you're known for your hat <laughs> on oh, backwards? Backwards, backwards, huh? Yeah. What's, what sort of new hat is that and learning is that sort of um, surprised you? The past three years I've learned um, so much about business because basically I've had to. But um, the whole marketing, releasing a product, branding, um, I had no clue about any of that. I was, I was just a kid who want to make a broadhead um so but, but since then i've got um another business as well um with one of my my lifelong friends at the moment um and i've learned from a lot of mistakes that i well not mistakes just just trial and error but when you mistake make a mistake in business it obviously costs money and money is what you need to establish a business so a lot of those mistakes i made along the way i've been able to obviously learn from and doing things the second time around, I've eliminated a lot of uh, a lot of factors that have cost me a lot of time and money. So we've been able to release products with our other business, which is a supplement brand. Um, so basically, I've learned from my mistakes, can do things a lot more efficiently, know how to do it the right way the first time, I guess, um, without going into too much of the technical side of things. But definitely, I'm a lot more of a business-minded person now than I was four years ago and, and I still am every day. I'm, I'm learning a lot, um, reading as much as I can and, and podcasts, you know, like you've got your podcast yourself there, there are hives of information out there for people who want to learn. Awesome, mate. Um, oh, how important, you know, you, you're, a, you're a big one for creating content even on, on your hunts. How important has social media played in, in getting the brand out there? Oh, it's a massive part. Um, social media is is growing so much and it's going to be such a massive part of our future. Um, uh, a few people out there obviously point out the negative things or try and be negative about social media. But for me, it's, it's just sharing, sharing what you do and making, making it accessible for everyone, you know, um, whether it be posting your hunt on an Instagram story and having everyone follow along um, or just posting general content to people who you couldn't reach through a brick bricks and mortar store or through a magazine. Um, you know, like typically 15 years ago, everyone bought hunting magazines, everyone bought archery magazines. Um, now you jump on Instagram and see what everyone's doing. Oh, where's he going? He's going hunting in Cape York or he's going over to New Zealand and you're following along almost on a live basis. So the whole demographic of how we see it has changed and everyone can follow along on almost basically live and feels as if they're there themselves. So I feel like if you can share part of that journey with people and sort of let them know 
what you go through, the struggles, everything like that. Um, it's a great way to just give an insight into what you do and which obviously in turn promotes the products when you see they work. Awesome, Aiden. What is your um, tags like in the morning, obviously being uh, sort of eight, eight or nine hours out from the USA? Uh, how, how many posts do you get wake up to from, from over the, in the States now? Oh, it's every day, every day. It's um, Yeah, we've always got people tagging us, whether it's just flinging arrows down the range or someone's hunting a tag somewhere in the country. Um, it's, it's good to see. We've, we've got a massive um, community now, people with Auscut, so particularly not just in America, um, over in South Africa as well. Um, I'm just in the process uh, with setting up our South African Auscut website. Um, so we've got a lot of interest in South Africa, but um, for those of you who don't know, the postal service over there is just absolutely atrocious for, for me to send something. Um, it would be like guys get broadheads seven weeks after they've been sent if the broadheads are still in the box type arrangement. Um, so I've got one of my friends over there, Danny, who's going to run uh, the South African um Arm of Oscar Broads, uh, so that's a pretty exciting thing for 2019. So setting that up over there, which will allow the guys in South Africa and Africa, Greater Africa itself to sort of be part of the team and be able to use our products. Nice. So a bit of insider trading. If there's any good uh, logistics companies in, in South Africa, <laughs> invest now. <laughs> <laughs> that's been my week this week sorting that actually. So, <laughs> mate. So what? What was the sort of setup for your Africa hunt last year? You guys seemed to be around a waterhole, or and you had a guide. What what was the key key sort of aims and focuses of, of that hunt? Yeah, so uh, last year I think it was in August I went over to hunt with Asombe Nord, um, which is an outfitter out of Namibia. Um, I met Harold, who runs the outfit um, at the Wild Deer Expo. I think it was a couple of years back, and basically. Um, We'd spoke a few times and he invited uh, myself and Liam Woods over. And basically what he wanted to just, what he wanted us to do was showcase his operation and basically get the word out there and, and show other bow hunters that, hey, this is what happens over here and this is how accessible it is to get um, and do a hunt in South Africa or in Namibia because it's a long way to go. There's a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of confusion with what those hunts entail a lot of the time between us. Um, but basically that hunt, um, typically over there you're in a ground blind or tree stand, which is typically over water or a game trail, generally over water. Um, so we've we done a large portion of that and the idea of the trip was to get a, a lot of content for Harold. So we said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll sit in the tree stands, we'll, we'll hunt the animals how your typical clients would. So there, there'd be one water source every, say, 10 kilometres and a lot of because it's so sparse over there in the Kalahari Desert, a lot of the water sources the animals would have to drink at were either man-made or just very small springs. So we'd either go and find a spring that animals had been using and we'd wire up some tree stands and you'd sit in a tree stand or they had some more permanent water sources where they had ground blinds. Um, obviously not everyone's cup of tea, but I can say that it was a lot more difficult than it seems in theory just to sit in a tree stand and shoot an animal out of water. Um, those animals over there get hunted by lions, basically. So they are so switched on and flighty, they make our fallow deer look stupid. Um, how switched on they are and how far they could pick movement was incredible. You'd be in a tree stand and they, they, they'd pick you from 200 yards out sometimes. It was 
it was incredible. But um, so we've done that side of the hunting, which I'll call the conventional, I guess, South African or African hunting. And then we also went out and done some spot and stalk hunting. Um, and typically because the animals are so switched on and in that Kalahari desert, it's very open, very sparse. So the likelihood of success is very minimal, but um, we were able to go out and we actually, or Liam in particular, um, shot a kudu bull spot and stalk, which is pretty unheard of over there. And it was the first one that they'd had on that concession shot spot and stalk. So it was um, a massive achievement for him and it was really cool to be a part of. Fantastic. And I'm sort of making my way through the original Modern Huntsman and Tyler Sharp sort of got a few articles about how much of a real community thing it is. What was the sort of um, relationship with the rest of the area for that for that hunting? Obviously, you've got to get, oh, it, it, got to get there. <laughs> yeah, no, um, Harold, um, I'm just trying to think of the village that was near the hunting concession we hunted. It's uh, slipped my mind at the moment, but um, basically... Every animal you shoot, every part of that animal is either is util, utilised by the local communities, whether um, it's either donated or sold to one of the local um, butchers, which is bought. But hunting and the hunting industry over there is such a big part of, um, I guess, sustaining those villages and communities over there. Um, we basically shoot an animal, we'd take it back, and then the boys would come and help and we'd break down that animal after hanging it overnight. It would go in, they would, they would take the meat to the butchery, they would take the skin, and the skin, um, whether uh, the horns and everything we would keep for trophies and whatnot, but every animal is seen as a resource over there. Um, and it was, it was a fantastic setup and the, the culture towards hunting and sustainable hunting over there was, was very, very strong. Mm. And and your ball was a reasonably old old looking thing with plenty of character. What was what was that? Yeah, I was um, yeah I was lucky enough. I, I shot a massive big old harder beast bull um, that was on the last day of the hunt. Um, I, I didn't even know a harder beast existed until this African trip sort of come up. And I looked at them and I sort of said, oh, I need a harder beast bull. I don't even know why, but it's just something about them. And for five days, they run rings around us. Um, I come to full draw on a couple of bulls. Um, it just just could not could not make it happen. Um, and on the last sit, on the last afternoon, we tried a new spot, and sure enough, had a massive big old bull, um, super thick bases, really broomed off. Come in, and yeah, I managed to put a perfect shot in on him at about seventeen meters, and he probably went fifty, but. That for me was one of the highlights of my trip. That but we basically held off five days, just the one single animal, and yeah, it all come together with about forty-five minutes of light left in our hunt. Good pick, mate. Going back to to your to your local um, range there, what what do you do with the meat? Um, obviously, you've probably got some good friends um, that look look for a bit of wild pork. Um, not as such, no. Um, in the area that I hunt in the last couple of years, there's been um, a few or a lot, a lot of cases of brucellosis actually in the mountains. Um, so the DPI have issued a few things um, over the last 12 months um, not to come in contact basically with any of the boars in the Hunter Valley region. But um, I can confirm because I, I did get brucellosis. Um, I think I... I remember reading an email sent out from the DPI and um, 
about the brucellosis and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I actually shot a ball that weekend and I had to cut, I cut myself on the broadhead um, and obviously got blood on my hands taking photos and whatnot and come home and I remember about two or three days later I, I thought I had what I thought was food poisoning and I was just constantly vomiting, back pain and things like that and it just went on and on and I ended up going to the hospital they gave me some things, went home, and it kept going on and on. And um, they sent me for blood tests. And, yeah, sure enough, I come back that I had contracted brucellosis. So um, it sort of put a bit of a bad taste in my mouth from eating pigs at the moment. But prior to that, um, I'd eaten a lot of younger sows and things like that with no dramas at all. But I think um, just for the moment, just to be safe, I'm, I'm steering clear of them for a while. But, but definitely um, some of the boars I shoot, we obviously take for dog meat and things like that for the property owners. Um, but yeah, it's just in the area I am in particular, there's been a lot of cases of that uh, brucellosis virus. I didn't know that's, that's no good. And there's a big question mark over, over a wild pig in, in New Zealand um, started last year as well. Our family got quite sick, whether it was because they were eating it a few days later or, or whether it was the rice or what, but now they, they were in ICU. It wasn't yeah. good. Yeah, I can confirm it was not a good feeling. I um, I wanted to die at the time. I was in so much pain. Oh dear! Now we've been yarning for a good period of time, and it, and it's late, and and you're a very busy man. You've got, as you said, two companies on the go and organising overseas trips. Where do people find you, and where do people find Oscar? Yeah, so basically, obviously, Oscar Broadheads, our, our main web, website is just www.ozcutbroadheads.com. Um, if you want to check them out, send us a message on there. Um, but otherwise, if you want to get in touch with me or follow along, basically, on any of the hunts, my Instagram tag is uh, just Nick Morton with three underscores at the end. So shoot us a message, ask me a question. Happy to happy to answer any any questions anyone's got. Awesome, mate. Um what would you like to leave people with? Uh, I don't know, uh, something about doing something a little bit different. Um, what, what's sort of something that you've managed to live by and obviously the fruits of, of your hard work are, are coming to the fore? Uh, I, I guess basically from what I've learned over this journey over the past couple of years is, is if you find something you're passionate about and chase it. We're only on this earth once, so... We get one crack to do all these things. So if you've got a passion in life, whatever it may be, chase it and do as much as you can because if that's what makes you happy, go on and do it. And, and that's what I'm trying to do with bow hunting. You know, um, I'm trying to get to as many places all around the world with as many people as I can with sort of the sport or lifestyle that unites us. So, yeah, get out there and just do it. You know, just get amongst it and do as much as you can. Awesome, mate. Thanks so much. And I've, I've learned plenty as well. So. Um, I'll be sure to share this with many people who have a common interest in. And yeah, thanks again for coming on board. It was an absolute pleasure. No worries, Ryan. It was good to chat. Thank you for having me on, mate. Cheers, brother. Have a good one. You too. We're so lucky with the guests that we get on the Stag Raw. People out there that are just doing what they love, chasing their passion. And wise words there from Nick to finish off. So yeah. If there's something that's scratching your itch, itch, something you're passionate about, get after it, give it a go because there is only one life to live and you've only got one chance of doing it. So, yeah, today's the day, get after it. Something like that anyway. Of course, the episode's brought to you by Waikito, W-A-I-K-E-T-0. Ketones might come in handy when you're at altitude. 
they burn your energy more efficiently. It takes less oxygen to get more energy output. So I'm sure like being in ketosis is protective if you're in a hyperbaric chamber. Um, it's also quite helpful to be more efficient, to be uh, burning fuel with less oxygen um, and probably comes in handy when you're out in the mountains. Um, I think there are a few reports of people getting less altitude sickness when in a state of ketosis. It's supposed to be good if you're on a long haul flight, less um, jet lag at the end of things. So yeah, might be something to test next time I go for a hunt in the hills and uh, finally get out there and chase some tar when I get back to New Zealand. If you'd like to get your hands on exogenous ketones, head over to waiketzero.proveitnow.com if you're in Australia, US, Canada or Asia. Otherwise, if you are in New Zealand, hit me up on Waikito's Facebook page, W-A-I-K-E-T-O, or at Stag Vision on Instagram. Just flick me a message, I can help you to get exogenous ketones into your hands. Um, unfortunately, prove it's not open there yet. Also, while you're there on the Facebook page, you can catch up on all the Stag Roy episodes um, going right back through what is now starting to be an extensive catalogue. Be sure to give us a rating on iTunes or whatever podcast app you're on. Um, give us a five star if you really like it, that would be helpful. And be sure to tag our guests in any posts if you do enjoy one of the episodes. Uh, chuck that up on your Instagram, tag the guests and tag me. It would be awesome to see what you think. Thanks so much for listening. Um, the numbers are always improving. It's really astounding. And um, yeah, hope you have a good week and we'll see you next time on The Stag Raw. Cheers.